This is Archive Atlanta, episode 157, Abortion. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. So this week we're covering a controversial topic uh, that has been in the news lately, and as I always do, I'm sharing the historical facts about the topic with a you know, tiny little sprinkling of my opinion here and there. I'd like to think if you're 157 episodes in, it's not hard to guess where I fall in this debate. It was really, really fascinating for me to peek into this world um, of abortion from the late 1880s and into the early 1900s. And not going back in a way of judging or anything like that, but just in a, trying to understand how each of these people I'm about to talk about this week felt, you know, how they operated in the society specific to their times. And so I hope you find this fascinating as well. Before we get into Atlanta, let's start with some baseline U.S. history. Indigenous tribal societies were well-versed in which root or herb could terminate pregnancies. The colonial period was a mismatch of different abortion rules that tended to follow the societal norms from the countries that controlled each colony. So for example, in British colonies, Abortions were legal if they were performed uh, prior to quickening, which is the feeling of the fetus moving in the utero. That happens at like 18 to 20 weeks. Uh, In French colonies, abortions were frequent despite being considered illegal. And then in Spanish and Portuguese colonies, abortion was illegal, which is not surprising because they're super Catholic. The Puritans actually brought over legal abortion from England, and there's early American medical books that give instructions um, for how to perform an abortion. The reality for enslaved women was very different as they were subject to the rules of their owners who, of course, refused to allow them to terminate pregnancies because the goal was to produce, you know, more children and more enslaved people. Official abortion laws did not appear on the books in the United States until 1821 and abortion before quickening was not illegal until the 1860s. Abortion acceptance changed during the Victorian era. And so by 1910, it's illegal in every state except Kentucky. The prevailing thoughts of the Victorians were that abortion was a upper-class white woman issue, that they were using it to limit their family size, which was unacceptable at the time. And the idea and the threat of female independence was also kind of a threat to the patriarchy. So especially this is a time when women are volunteering, uh, they're joining clubs, women's clubs, which I've talked about a lot. And then on top of all that, this is also the time that classically trained physicians began to crack down on homeopaths and midwives, more of a male-dominated scientific medical ideal, which, you know, we still sort of struggle with today. The sad part is that the midwives and the non-traditional practitioners were the ones that were actually performing safe abortions. Uh, Medical abortions were really dangerous and really successful. So sprinkling in a fear of the declining birth rate, uh, and we eventually get a coalition of male doctors backed by the American Medical Association, uh, the Catholic Church, and a lot of sensationalist newspapers. And there's like a campaign to criminalize abortion. So what about Atlanta? This week, we're talking about the physicians that practice abortions in the city and the lay people who assisted them, who these people were, where they lived and worked, and what consequences they paid for their advocacy. First up is Dr. Grafton W. Gardner, born around 1926 in Rhode Island. By 1860, he was a graduate of Oglethorpe Medical College 
And then by 1875, he is listed as living in Nashville and advertises that he gives particular attention to chronic diseases and will treat the poor. By the 1880 census, he was finally living in Atlanta on Peter Street. He was in his 50s and married to Isabella. And he had an office on Whitehall Street where he is listed as a homeopathic physician. The 1880s were a rough decade for Gardner. Before his abortion arrests even entered the picture, um, in 1882, he was charged with a failure to report a smallpox case. So he went to see a black child who lived on Hilliard Street, and he incorrectly determined that she was suffering from measles. Um, and so obviously it was very important to know the smallpox, so they took him to court. In regards to Gardner and abortion, this was something that he would repeatedly be arrested for, and yet police detectives struggled to have the charges stick. In April of 1886, he was arrested for criminal abortion when another physician told police that someone came to him, you know, asked him to perform the abortion for $100. He said no. He sent them to Dr. Gardner. The police think that this girl, apparently from Virginia, is inside Dr. Gardner's house. So they get a warrant. They visit. They search the house. uh, They find nothing. He's still arrested, but he's released. With a little bit of investigation, the story gets a little more Jerry Springer. Uh, apparently, there is a woman named Sally Fishback who originated this story. Um, she was trying to find an abortion for Nellie Dupree, who was from Kentucky. But after they interrogated her, she said that she made this all up to get back at Dr. Gardner for causing her divorce. I don't really know what happened, but this is the first of many stories about Gardner and other women. In 1887, he was arrested for being intimate with Mary Hunt, who was described as a mulatto and a student at a local college. So if you listen to my episode on interracial marriage, you would know that any sexual interaction between different races was, in fact, illegal. And she, of course, she, not he, is charged with adultery and fornication. It gets more complex because Mrs. Gardner, his wife, actually came to the jail to bail her out. So I don't think we're going to know the actual story there. I suspect the miscegenation charge might have been a plea by detectives to finally put him behind bars for good. In 1889, Gardner's in the news again. He's arrested for performing an abortion uh, for Claude Harris, who was 17, and described as, quote unquote, nearly white. He was taken to trial for this, where the prosecuting attorney revealed that Gardner's real name was Ledoux and that he was using the Gardner identity and diploma. That never gets settled, so still don't even know if this man was really who he says he was. Um, That trial was declared a mistrial, and then in 1891, his wife Isabella died, and she was buried back in Rhode Island. Two years later, he's arrested twice in the same month for performing abortions. Uh, One woman, Katie McEwen, was 18 years old. She lived in Atlanta alone, and her boyfriend, Ed Hollinsworth, was a 20-year-old bricklayer. So Katie was found in the home of a black family in Pittsburgh, the neighborhood, by a Dr. Wright. Uh, This is a very dirty dancing scene because Dr. Wright comes to help this girl, realizes that she's dangerously ill from this botched abortion, and that uh, police were able, they were called, they were able to convince Katie to testify that Gardner had performed the surgery. So he's finally arrested, he's convicted, and he's sentenced. He began serving his three-year sentence, and he actually served most of it at Chattahoochee Brick. But in 1896, we had a very interesting turn of events when Governor William Atkinson pardoned Dr. Gardner in January. And so police are mad. Uh, They interview the detectives down at the police precinct. They're confused. They don't think Gardner can reform. And the governor defends himself. He's like, you know, the pardon came from Judge Clark, uh, Solicitor Hill. 
and, you know, Dr. Gardner had served 21 months, so we're going to let him have these 15 months of freedom. Did he learn his lesson? I don't know, because in 1900, four years later, Dr. Gardner is once again arrested at his home. This charge is performing an abortion on a young woman from Alabama who had checked into the Bachelor's Domain Hotel. Don't worry, I'm going to cover that in a future mini-episode. It's really fascinating. Detectives went to the hotel to coax the story from her, receiving a tip from a woman who lived near the hotel. And so this woman that just lived nearby, she told police that Lula Carter, who was employed as the Gardner family cook, but also trained as a nurse, was paid to bring the young girl from Alabama to the bachelor's domain. And so Gardner is arrested. Um, He's placed under a $500 bond. And then Lula is also arrested and she's placed under a $100 bond. We don't know how that story ended up. Uh, The stories of Dr. Gardner slowly disappear from the press. I assume it might have been his age as he was in his late 80s or very close to 90 years old when he died in 1916. He's buried at Westview Cemetery and he was survived by his one son and his second wife. The next person I'm going to talk about today is Dr. Rosa Frodenthal Monish. Maybe I said that wrong. And this woman was fascinating. She could definitely have her own mini episode. I'm going to share as much as I can uh, specifically to her role in women's health and abortions. Rosa was the first woman to graduate with a degree in medicine from a medical college in Georgia. And that was the Georgia College of Eclectic Medicine and Surgery. So um, I think it started in Augusta or Macon. But by the time she graduated in 1883, the college was in Atlanta. Rosa had previously graduated from the gynecological clinic at the University of Gessen in Germany, uh, the Royal Saxon Infirmary for Women, also in Germany, and the Dresden Postgraduate College Hospital, which was in New York. So just past the turn of the 20th century, she is nearing on 25 years of experiences in what were called, quote unquote, the diseases of women. In 1887, she married William Adam Monish after being set up by a patient. So uh, William was a jeweler in Athens, had a mutual friend who was traveling to Atlanta to see Dr. Fordenthal. And this woman was like, oh, you know, I bet these two German immigrants would make a lovely couple. And so she convinces William to also travel to Atlanta to let Rosa treat his barber's itch, which, yes, I had to look up. It is apparently a staph infection of the hair follicles in the beard or mustache. They fall in love. He ends up going to medical school, becomes a doctor, and the two married in 1887, like I said. Together, they make their home and their office in the house that Jack built, which was the building that used to stand downtown where um, the MARTA station is next to the Ellis Hotel. In 1893, we got the first newspaper accounts of legal troubles. So she was being sued by Julia Wells, whose daughter was seduced, quote unquote, and now pregnant. Uh, She sent her daughter to spend two months at the Monish facility. And so here's an important distinction. Rosa and her husband seem to have operated a place where pregnant women could be hidden away until they gave birth, which is really common. So while she, there is evidence she performed abortions, she also housed pregnant women. Um, But this particular woman, so she sends her daughter there and she gets this bill and it's for a thousand dollars. If you adjust this for inflation, it's like getting a $20,000 bill in the mail. And Wells feels like this is extortion. You know, like they know that she's in a precarious situation. She doesn't want anyone to know and that you know they're extorting her for this money. 
By 1901, the Monish's permit fight began. So the couple filed to build a 12-room residence at the corner of Forest Avenue and Peachtree Street. I'm sorry, this is today Ralph McGill at Peachtree. And city council had an issue with it. So the issue being that while the Monishes claimed it was a private home, there was suspicions that it was to be used as a hospital or sanatorium. And while these early white men of Atlanta government did not believe in interfering with the right to build property as you wish, one of the council members was like, "Uh, let me let me read you this card advertisement that Rosa has been mailing out. And it states verbatim, quote, first class accommodations can be furnished during treatment to a limited number of ladies from a distance. Am erecting an elegant residence and offices at 319 Peachtree. We'll be ready in 1901, end quote. And said council member finishes with a statement like, my constituents do not want an abortion factory in their midst. And let me be clear, the Monishes, they were lying um, and they're just bad at it because the plans themselves clearly had an 18 by 20 foot room that was labeled waiting room. So when the permit was denied, the couple brought on legal challenges. Uh, The mayor eventually upholds council's veto, and the Monishes seemed to begin construction anyway. Um, It was legally fought again in 1902, and it sounds like they won. So from what I can tell, this house is built and it exists by 1904. Now, while we don't have specifics about cases, you know, specific cases of abortion that were happening in there, um, they did. The sad part about 1904 is it's also just a personal struggle year for Rosa. So she's suing her husband for financial issues. She's filing a restraining order. All of this has nothing to do with the abortion story, so I'm not going to get too in the weeds with it. But her life ends in a tragedy. So after a difficult divorce, uh, she's actually charged with sending obscene letters in federal mail. They insinuate that it's related to her husband's mistress. Um, I wonder if it had something to do with the advertisement she sent out. But she is sentenced to five years in the penitentiary. So when she returns home from court after sentencing, she goes to her room and she drinks prussic acid and commits suicide. She is also buried at Westview Cemetery, although she is an unmarked grave. The last person I want to talk about today is Otis Lee. And unlike the previous two, his story comes a little bit later in the 40s. He was not a trained physician. He was a 40-year-old black man who lived in Ashview Heights. And he was trained as an orderly. So the story is that he worked for an unnamed Atlanta doctor. From what I can tell from news, you know, articles, he was a very well-to-do guy. He hosted a lot of um, clubs and social events at his house. And when you start to hear the stories of his uh, legal troubles, it started with similar to Dr. Gardner. So the police kind of know what he's doing, but they can't catch him. And so his home is raided more than once. And when police go in there, they realize that it's set up what they describe it as a country doctor house. So it looks like medical stuff's happening there. And they find some penicillin. And Lee at first, um, I can't remember what his first excuse is, but then he's like, whoa, I was at, I was actually treating people with venereal diseases. You know, I was providing care for the black community, which, you know, if you've heard other episodes, was pretty abysmal in the 40s. In 1948, Lee was arrested and charged with operating as part of an abortion and white slavery ring. White slavery being a kind of an older term for prostitution or sex trafficking. So the charge is that there's this lady, Marie Soldat. Uh, she was trafficking women, but she was bringing them to Lee's home for abortions. 
In June, he was found guilty of performing the operation on a white woman, and he was sentenced to 12 months on the public works detail or six months in jail. Marie is also found guilty for violating uh, the Mann Act, which was a federal charge. And now in an interesting turn of events, uh, Otis Lee's conviction was reversed because they realized that the girl did not actually see him. So there is no eyewitness placing him um, as the person performing the operation. Two years later, Lee was arrested again when a 16-year-old girl ends up dying at Grady Hospital from complications of the abortion he performed. Just a quick aside, there was a lot of other smaller abortion stories that I didn't fit into here, and a lot of them came to light because the patients ended up at Grady. It was really sad. And so they would have abortions somewhere else, in someone's house, in someone's basement. Um, they would have complications. They would end up at Grady and they would die. And that would prompt police to figure out what happened. So back to Otis. He is charged formally with murder. Uh, he waives his trial rights and he pleads guilty to involuntary manslaughter. References to him completely disappear. I have no idea where he ended up. I don't know when he died. And I don't know where he may be buried. I do know that the house he lived in and that these things happened in is also no longer standing on Drummond Street. In 1959, the American Law Institute released a draft proposal that would make abortion legal in cases of fetal abnormality, rape or incest, and if there was a threat to women's health. And so many states begin to pass this model law in the 1960s, and Georgia was one of them. In 1968, the Georgia Senate passed the bill to allow therapeutic abortions, making it the third state in the nation to do so. And there was something with Governor Maddox, like he he didn't want to sign it, but he wasn't vetoing it. So I think it was able to be passed without his signature. And surprisingly, it was described in that time as one of the nation's most liberal abortion laws. On January 22, 1973, the United States Supreme Court handed down the Roe v. Wade decision, so we all you know, know and talk about that often, it secured the legal right for women to have abortions. But something that I learned in this research was that there was another court case, Doe v. Bolton, and this was tried and decided the same exact time as Roe v. Wade, so it just kind of disappeared to history a little bit. But this case originated in Georgia, and it argued that the specific requirements, so there was like five very specific requirements for the Georgia law, made it really difficult for economically disadvantaged women or women of color to access safe legal abortions in the state. The judges in that case unanimously declared um, the constitutional restriction portion of the law was unconstitutional, um, but they did uphold the medical approval requirements. So there you have it, the story of abortion in Atlanta's history. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or a review, and you can visit the Patreon link in the show notes to support the podcast. Hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week.